And welcome back to the Curiosity Chamber. This is Season 3, Episode 22. And you can follow me on TikTok or Instagram at the Curiosity Chamber or Snapchat at the Chamber Pod. I would love to hear from you, new or old. I want to hear your thoughts on the podcast and what you think of it. And for everyone that has been listening, thank you so much for your support. It means the world to me. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And let's go ahead and get into our next guest. With me today is a brilliant public motivational speaker, a Division I NCAA basketball player turned SWAT hostage negotiator. The very inspiring, this is Terry Tucker. Terry Tucker, welcome to the show. Well, thanks, Jay. I'm looking forward to talking with you today. Likewise, likewise. So... Your profile says, I will teach you how to achieve your uncommon and extraordinary life when everyone else just seems to be getting by. It does. It's kind of scary, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Especially nowadays, right? I feel like nowadays, a lot of people are just hanging on for dear life, trying to get by. They are. And I don't think, you know, COVID certainly didn't help that at all. You know, we kind of all hunkered down and sort of hid behind our devices and things like that. And yeah. I think in a lot of ways, that's kind of how that all, all that wokeness came about. And now that <laughs> people are kind of, you know, opening back up and getting back in touch with each other, I think a little more common sense is prevailing on, on how we deal with each other and things like that. So it, it'll be interesting to see where we go from here. Yeah. So you, you yourself have a pretty uncommon life. It seems I was, I was going over your bio and you kind of like myself, it looked like you were moving job to job. What's the reasoning behind that? I don't mean to sound like a employer, like, so your resume says you've had seven jobs in the past year. What's that all about? (laughs) Yeah. So there, there, there really is a backstory. I, um, when I graduated from college, I, I, I moved home to to find a job. I was the first person in my family to graduate from college, you know, and I was I was all set to make my mark on the world with my newly obtained business administration degree. That's what I have. <laughs> yeah. And and I look back now and I was like, I didn't know anything about business just <laughs> right. because I had a degree. But my first two jobs, I, I I found the first job in the corporate headquarters of Wendy's International, the hamburger chain, yeah. in their marketing department. Uh, that was the good news. The bad news is I lived with my parents for the next three and a half years as I helped my mother care for my father and my grandmother, who were both dying of different forms of cancer. Oh, no. And the backstory of all this is my grandfather was a Chicago police officer from 1924 to 1954. So he was in Chicago during Prohibition when alcohol was outlawed in the United States during the Great Depression, late 20s, early 30s, and during the, you know, the mob, the the gangs, Al Capone and those guys shooting up the town. And he was actually shot in the line of duty with his own gun. It was not a serious injury. He was shot in the ankle. But my dad always remembered the stories that my grandmother told. My dad was an infant at the time of that knock on the door of Mrs. Tucker, grab your son, come with us. Your husband's been shot. And let's be honest, trauma medicine in 1935 was a whole lot different than trauma medicine in 2022. Like a shot of whiskey or something? Uh, yeah, exactly. That, that's pretty much it. Terry, I, I got to ask you real quick before we even continue. Did you happen to know a Bob Baroni? Because that was my grandfather and he was the chief of police out here. 
<sighs> around around that time, maybe a little bit lo- maybe a little bit later. That that you know that name sounds familiar. It could be. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't yeah, I, I I can't put a face on it and you know my grandmother, I, I mean obviously she's been dead quite a while but mm-hmm. probably I mean it was a small community. I mean Chicago yeah. was big but it wasn't what right. it is today. Uh they might have known each other. We'll have to look um, into that after. That's yeah, that's yeah, kind of. Yeah, I, I have actually have some uh, some scrapbooks from my grandfather that maybe I could go through and see if you know. Same here. Awesome. Happening. Let's do it. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so you know, when I I expressed an interest, I felt a passion to go into law enforcement, but my dad was like, "Absolutely not. You're going to go to college. You're going to major in business. You're going to get out, get a great job, get married, have two point four kids, and live happily ever after." White picket fence. Yeah, but yeah. that's what my dad wanted me to do. That wasn't what I felt I was supposed to do. So I had a choice when I graduated from college. I could say, you know what? Sorry, dad, I'm going to go blaze my own trail and go yeah. into law enforcement or out of love and respect for you, I will go into business. So now if you look at my resume, my first two jobs were in business because that's what I did for my dad. And I sort of joke. I did what every good son did. I waited till my father passed away. And then I followed my own dreams and became a 37-year-old rookie police officer. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It's pretty old for a rookie there, huh? It is. I took a whole lot more Tylenol in the police academy than all the other young people. So, (laughs) Did they they look up to you, though? Or was it you didn't get any respect? Or was there a a medium ground for being paid? we had moved. This was in. This was not in Chicago. This was in Cincinnati, Ohio, where I became a police officer. And previous to that, we had been living in California, and I had been a reserve police officer with the city of Santa Barbara. Okay. So I I was a little bit older, and I had some some law enforcement experience. So yeah, a lot of the younger officers or the younger recruits kind of you know, hey, how do I do this or what do we do and stuff like that. And yeah. I was certainly you know, I mean, I, I did that same thing when when I was out in Santa Barbara. So I was certainly willing to help people, you know, who were interested in, you know, and just getting better at the job. Yeah. Do you, um, do you remember what the application process was for becoming a police officer back then? I do. So initially, um, and, and I'll never forget this. They were looking for two classes of 50 officers each. So, you know, one class put them through for 50 and then the next class, another 50. We had about 3,500 people yeah. that sat for that test. Yep. So it was initially a test. If you got a certain score on the test, then you moved to the physical fitness part of it. And then from there, it was uh, a psychological where there was a group psychological and there was also um, a, you had to meet with a psychologist and stuff like that. And I, I'll give you a funny story. The, the same thing happened when I was in Santa Barbara and we were, we were all sitting in a room uh, getting ready to take the test for the psychological. And one by one, we were being called out to, to meet with the psychologist. And one of the guys that was there, and this was literally the last phase of it. One of the guys that was there was like, you know, he gets with the psychologist and the psychologist says to him, hey, what do you think of my assistant? She's pretty hot, don't you oh, think? Jesus. And the guy's like, <laughs> oh, man, she is gorgeous. I would. <laughs> Yeah. Dog. And then, yeah, yeah. And the guy's like, well, she's my wife. Sorry, you're not getting the job. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. No way. <laughs> and that like, will linger on for the rest of his life in his mind. It will. 
it, it, well, it was like, whoops, you know, shouldn't, uh, should have been a little more quiet. Talk less, think more, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I went through the, uh, the application process a couple times while trying to become a police officer and a firefighter and just the process, it, it wasn't difficult, but the testing I did so bad, like I'm so bad at taking tests, everything else I'm, I'm good with just the test, the written test just crumbled me. I never yeah. got offered a job. So <laughs> I'll tell you today, it's not as much about the written test as it is the physical fitness test. People cannot, you know, they can't do pushups. They can't run. They can't do, you know, and it's it, it, not just that, but you know, the military has that same issue where people are not physically fit enough to, you know, yeah, I want to go in the military. Well, sorry, you're not, you know, you can't do the basics that we need you to do. And and the same thing in law enforcement where people are finding that it's not something that, you know, they physically can do. And I still have friends in Cincinnati and I'll just, you know, so that was my experience. And now today they were looking to put on a class of 60, only 600 people took the test. They were only able to fill 45 of those 60 slots based on, you know, backgrounds and physicals and, you know, everything else that goes that goes into that. And about four or five of the people quit during the first week. So they're down into the 30s now. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not a job people want to do anymore. Right. I mean, That's so, for sure. Yeah. yeah. They're getting police are definitely getting a bad rap. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I, you know, the police are the most visible portion of government. And, you know, I mean, what we do is it, it's not sexy. It's 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 ugly. It's dirty. It's, you know, but if you think about it, you know, people are like, you know, all, oh, you're, you're, you kill people all the time. It's like, well, if you think about the millions and millions and millions of contacts that law enforcement has around the country every right. day exactly. with people and maybe a thousand people a year are shot and killed. Yes. It, it, in the scheme of things, it's it, it's a, it's so infinitesimal. It's like, you know, the odds of you getting shot and killed are like, you know, 0.000046%. Yes. You're right. It, it's just, it, it's so rare. I mean, I, I you know, I, I never shot at anybody. I probably should have a couple of times but, and certainly was shot at, but that's the difference between law enforcement and the bad guys. The bad guys can shoot at anybody you want, we have to realize that, you know, if there's somebody behind that person or something like that, yes. we, we probably can't shoot that person because we're responsible for where that round goes. So yeah. everything is magnified nowadays, it, it seems like. So everyone has a camera phone. So it's like all these arguments you're are being broadcasted on main news sites and, you know, your Fox and your NBC, yeah. whatever. I mean, think about it. I mean, think about if this was your job. Yeah. Number one, you made less money than a plumber. Yes. Number two, nobody wanted you around. And number three, everybody lied to you. If that was your job every day, how long would you stay in that job? Because that's what law enforcement is. You know, you make less money than a plumber. You know, nobody wants you around. It's never good when the police show up. I mean, everybody loves the firemen because they're there you know, exactly, to help everybody. Yes. But everybody hates the police. And then yeah. everybody lies to you because they want you to believe their side of the story and take the other person to jail. So that's your job every day. You have to have a calling. You have to believe 
that you know you have a reason there to serve your community. If you do that, it's a little more palatable. Otherwise, you know, if you're in it to take names and kick butt and stuff like that, you're in the wrong profession. And let's not get it twisted. Some people are like that. They're, a, they're, very, a very, very small portion of people are like that, but they do exist. They do. And, and, and we had a couple of those when I was in Cincinnati and we, we got rid of them pretty quickly. It's oh, like, well, no, this person it. should not have a gun and a badge. They, they've got the wrong attitude. And, and that's just, you know, there's always going to be somebody out there bigger, stronger, tougher than you are. Yes. And not only are you going to probably get yourself hurt, but you may get one of us hurt or killed as well. So, you know, I always used to tell the recruits, the two biggest tools you bring to this job are your brain and your mouth. How, yeah. how you use those can, you know, take a yes person and turn them into a no person or take a no person and turn them into a yes person. Right. You're exactly right. The job is so stressful in itself. And, you know, when you're pulling over somebody and you're coming up from the rear of the car, like going through a, a police officer's mind, I'd imagine is this person's going to be pissed off. They don't like me already. There's a bad rep that we have. And now I, you know, I have to try and mitigate like the negative effects. Right. Well, so. and, and we, you know, you'd get people that you'd stop and, you know, they'd have kids in the car and they'd be like, you know, see that, but he's a bad man. Don't talk, you know, and you look oh, at him like, whoa. really? Whoa. Would your kid, I mean, if your kid needs the police, are you really setting up a dynamic here where they're going to be like, I, I, I'm not going to go talk to a police officer? You don't even know me. How do you know I'm a bad person? You yeah. Know? Yeah. That, yeah. We, back in the day, we used to have that D.A.R.E. program. Um, all the kids love the police officers. We used to go riding our bikes looking for police officers because they, they'd have these sports cards, like baseball cards, but it was of them with, uh, it was of the police officer. Sure. Like, doing a kind of a, a pose holding their arms or something and on right. the bottom it said dare and each police officer had one so we'd go and try and collect them from each cop <laughs> <laughs> that's a pretty good idea absolutely right yeah. <laughs> so i want to touch base on I, I read that you were in the swat and you were a hostage negotiator is this correct that is correct good lord man so I don't even know where to begin with that. Um, how many years in the force were you before you became a hostage um, negotiator? Probably five or six. Okay. Okay. Um, what's What's the process of becoming a hostage negotiator? That's such a crazy job. Yeah, it is. Usually, your next door neighbor is not a hostage negotiator. You know, so <laughs> yeah, it's, true. You don't run across those people very often. Um, so SWAT is divided, uh, at least in Cincinnati, it was divided in, in, in most departments, it is, into two groups. One are the tactical people and one of the, and the other is the negotiators. And, and the tactical people are the ones with all the, the guns and, and the armored cars and all that kind of fun stuff. And then the negotiators are the ones that actually try to get to a point where we don't have to use the tactical people, where we try to get the people out. Peacefully. And so it, it's the same kind of a, a process. You have to do a, a physical fitness test. You, you have to meet with the psychologist. They go back and, you know, talk to your old, your old bosses and stuff like that. You know, what's this guy like? Things like that. There are interviews and then they make a decision. And so I was I was lucky enough to to, to get on. And, and I'll never forget our, my first training session. Very simple. You know, it, it, it's kind of, I mean, we, we work with each other. I mean, we just make up scenarios and we, and we practice. And so, you know, there's a hostage in a room with a hostage taker behind a closed door and I'm negotiating. 
and then the, and the hostages the whole time is screaming, you know, help me, help me, help. I, I totally blew it the first time because I spent my entire time talking to the hostage and almost no time <laughs> talking to the hostage taker. Right. Like, wow, do I have a lot to learn here? Yeah. Yeah. God, that's a, that's got to be such a stressful job. I have uh, plenty of questions for this, if you don't mind. No, um, I don't mind at all. Okay. So you get it, you, you were talking about training and I feel like with these situations, it, it almost reminds me of training for a war. Like you can only do so much. You can only gather so many tools, but once your feet on the ground overseas and a grenade goes off in front of you, like there's a whole nother aspect of emotions. Like it, shit just got real. So how do you, how do you put that into play? How, like, your very first, can you remember your very first negotiation in real setting? Like, would you say you were ready for it or could nothing prepare you for that? Um, I guess let me back up because it, it, it you know, the uh, Samuel L. Jackson, you know, the actor did a movie back in the 90s called The Negotiator and it made him almost look like Superman. Like, you know, he did everything. And let me explain kind of how it works. So yes, there is a primary. There is somebody who's actually, you know, talking to this person, either over a headset or on a phone or through a door or whatever. And then there's a, there's a secondary and that person's sitting right next to the person and they're listening. They're not saying anything, but they're listening to everything that's going on. And then there are four or five more negotiators that are doing what I used to call working the crowd. So it's, you know, they're trying to figure out why are we here? You know, maybe they're talking to the person's mother or neighbor or somebody who, you know, who, who called this in and things like that. Yeah. And so you may be the primary and you'll get a note from your secondary that'll say, don't talk about his mother. Because the, the, the people working the crowd found out that he had a big fight with his mother and now he's barricaded himself in the house with a gun. So it, it's it's much more of a team effort yes. than it is, you know, one person trying to do everything. I, I'll, I'll never forget we were negotiating with a 15-year-old kid and he had a gun and he barricaded himself in a house and he was kind of a gangbanger. And, and we were we had done everything we knew how to do to get him out and he wouldn't come out. And so we we kind of we, we told him we'd call him back and we kind of huddled and we we're like, what, what do you guys think? And, you know, we're kind of throwing ideas back and forth. And, and one of the guys said, wait a minute, he's 15 years old. He's a kid. Yes. Let's scare him. So what we did is we had the tactical team break a window and throw in a flashbang grenade, which it, it doesn't, it's not a grenade like it blows up, but it, it basically produces a loud sound and a very bright light. And it scares the heck out of most people if, you're, if you don't know what's coming. And so we're like, okay, let's do that. And so, you know, they did, they cracked it and, and bang, it goes off. Within 10 minutes, that kid was out. So, yeah. you know, I mean, sometimes you need to be a little unconventional on how you, you do this. And, and we worked with a psychologist. We had a psychologist that was attached to us that didn't necessarily come to the scene, but was at all our trainings and, you know, would develop scenarios and be like, after the scenario, we debrief. Did you think about this? You know, what about this? Maybe you should consider this. And so over time, you develop skills. Over time, you develop yes, yes. things that, I mean, was I ready the first time? I, I guess as ready as I would ever be. But I mean, I got better at, as, I, as I did it more. 
Yeah, it seems like one of those things you have to have the hand-on training because things are going to go sideways and you can't you can't learn that from books or, or training. You can't. You can't. And 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 we were also fortunate we were able to train with with the FBI's hostage negotiation uh members in in Cincinnati and that. So that was right. that was helpful to us. I mean, they are I, I you've seen all the, you know, the profilers and all that kind of stuff. I mean, these people are really really ended. I mean, these are the people that, you know, if you're a missionary in the Philippines and you get kidnapped, those are the people that go in and try to negotiate to get you out and stuff like that. Oof, yeah, that's heavy. Um, yeah. So during these negotiations, are you, are you actually empathetic during these negotiations or is it more that you're kind of desensitized, uh, I guess, like you, you have a job to do and you're going to get it done by any means possible? Uh, yes and no. Um, so a, a couple things. It, you're trying to develop a relationship. And like any relationship, you know, husband, wife, parent, child, boss, subordinate, whatever you want to call it, you, you, the, the big overarching part of that is trust. Do you trust me? You know, do you trust me to help you? And, and so you, you do have to be empathetic with people but you have to develop that trust. And the way I used to describe what we did is this. We've all been to the park or, and, and been on a, a teeter-totter or a seesaw, you know. And when we start negotiating with a person, their emotional end, their emotional brain is way up in the air and their rational brain is kind of down on the ground. And over time, by asking them open-ended questions, by getting them to burn off a lot of that emotional energy, we get that teeter-totter, that seesaw, to where it comes to kind of equilibrium. And then hopefully over more time, you get it to where the rational side, the rational brain is up in the air and the emotional brain is down on the ground. Because we all make better decisions when we use our emotional or our, our, our rational brain yeah. as opposed to our emotional brain. So there were times where we would start out negotiating with somebody and we'd spend two, maybe three hours kind of over here talking about something when the real problem was over here and the person didn't trust us enough to say, okay, here's the real issue. We're going to talk about all this garbage over here that has nothing to do with why we're really here. But once I trust you, now I've got to be at a situation where, okay, now I'll start talking about why we're really here. And one of the things we never did is we never lied to people. So people would say to us, hey, I'll come out, I'll put the gun down, I'll let the hostage go, whatever it was, but you got to promise me when I come out, I'm not going to go to jail. And we would have to say, well, when you do come out, you are going to go to jail. And then we would try to deflect the conversation to something that was much more positive or something they could look forward to. So yeah, it, it, was, it was a lot of psychology. And the other part of that is, you know, people used to always say, you know, great job, you talked this guy out. Yeah. What we really did is we listened them out because we would just ask an open-ended question. We would get them to talk and then we would, what's called mirror, we would basically repeat back to them what they said to us and we would attach an emotion to it. And the issue here was you had to get that emotion right. So if somebody was like pulling their hair out mad yeah, and you, may, and you classified the emotion as, well, you seem a little upset. Well, you totally missed it. And that's why negotiations were so physically demanding. You were exhausted when they were uh -huh. over 
that was my that was my next ask. I was gonna say, <laughs> like it it seems like it can become a stamina game. And how are you so? How do you become so patient and not get angry over time? Like if you're out there for five six hours straight and doesn't seem like you're going anywhere, you have to have a a patience of like a monk. You do. You you do. You you realize that you, as you said earlier, you have a job to do. I mean, my job is to try to get you out safely to get the hostage out safely. And I would say 90% of the time, we were pretty good in Cincinnati. We, we trained really hard. We had really good people. About 90% of the time, we got the people out. Everybody got out safely. But about 10% of the time, the people, and again, this is their decision. They dictate. I mean, we, we, we have the upper hand. They don't realize that. But bottom line is, they dictate how this goes. I mean, I can be on my A game and everything and yeah. they could say, nope, sorry, I'm not coming out because I'm not going to jail. And they would they would kill themselves. And, and that happened about 10 percent of the time. And while that's always tragic, I never lost any sleep over it. And I don't mean to sound callous about it. Mm-hmm. But if you think about it, I mean, Jay, it would be like me asking you to go next door to your neighbors who maybe you don't even know. Because they've been fighting, they've been married for 40 years, and they've been fighting for 40 years about the same problem. And I'm, I'm going to ask you to walk into that house and solve that problem for them. Is that fair to you? It makes sense. No, it's not it, fair. It makes not, sense. I mean, so we did the best we could with what we had. But, you know, a lot of times we get called into a problem that's been festering for, you know, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, and it comes to a head mm-hmm. on this particular day or this particular night. And we're sent in to try to deal with it. And so you do the best you could. And that's why it's important to have people work in the crowd. Tell us why we're here. What's going on? What's his deal? You know, and 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 they have a second set of ears, you know, who hears something that maybe I didn't hear while that person is talking. So the other good thing we had to do or the other thing we had to really get good at is using silence to our benefit. Interesting. So somebody would talk and talk and talk and talk and then they'd stop. And as human beings, we don't like that. We, right. We're uncomfortable with silence. Yes. But we wouldn't say anything. We would sit in that silence. And then eventually they would get uncomfortable and they'd start talking again. And that's what we wanted them to do. Uh, mental warfare. It is. That's very fascinating. Wow. Yeah, they, they would put themselves in these situations and you were just there to try and do what you can out of, you know, the cards that you were dealt with that particular situation. Exactly. And, 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 yeah. and I'll give you, I'll, let, let me give you a couple tips here that can help in any negotiation, even, you know, with your yeah. kids or with your spouse or something like that. Please. One of the things we used to do is we would ask how and what questions. We would stay away from why questions because Kind of like you asked me in the beginning, you know, well, why did you do this? You know, why, why does your resume look like this? Why can sound accusatory? Why can sound like, oh, wait a minute, are you judging me? And that yeah. kind of, so we would stay away from why questions and we would use how and what questions. Well, how do you think we can solve this? Now, it's my job to get you out safely by me asking you, how do you think we can solve this? Now, unbeknownst to you, I've just got you involved in helping me get you out. Because now you're gonna come back to me like, well, I think this, so now you're helping me solve your problem. So how and what questions are real good at getting people 
and they don't even realize they're doing this, to engage in helping them get out of this situation. That's really funny because, yeah, at the beginning, I did start off with that that why question, and immediately I started backtracking to not sound like an employer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, you really you helped me out there when you said For that. Sure like, oh, okay, you asked me a why question. Good. Okay. <laughs> There's a, a real-life case right there, live yeah. in action. <laughs> so, you, you kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, but when you have a tough day at the office, like something doesn't go right. I know it's not in your hands, but in this line of work, it's really detrimental. Would it ever translate to you coming home to your family or were you pretty good at just keeping two separate blocks? Like this is my work life and then this is my home life. Um, my family was in all honesty, my sanctuary, you know, a lot of a lot of law enforcement, not a lot, but enough of them that, you know, they would, okay, hey, you know, we're done with this. Let's go out to the bar. No. Yeah, right. No, right. I don't want to do that. You know, I mean, in law enforcement and in, in any kind of first responder, you know, the incidence of suicide, the incidence of alcohol and drug abuse, the incidence of just doing stupid stuff, you know, making bad decisions and things yes. like that yes. are, are, are just heightened and, and, I didn't want to do that. I mean, my family was always my sanctuary. I could go home, take my boots off in the garage and be like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm home. This is, this is my safe place. This is the place where, you know, I, I, I seek refuge. And so, you know, it, it's just my wife and daughter and I, so it, we have a pretty small family, but it's certainly mm-hmm. something that I didn't want to go to the bar. I mean, I like these people. I, I loved working with them. I'm one of them two of my best friends or, or partners that I had and stuff like that, even today. Awesome. And, and, but it was like, no, we're not going to the bar. I'm, I'm going home and I'm, I'm going to be with my family. You guys go out have a good time, but no. And, and yeah. that's okay. I mean, nobody was like, Oh, you know, Tucker won't come with us. So, you know, he's not one of us. It was never like that, but it, I, I had the ability, you know, and, and the other thing is that I was older, you know, I, I mean, when I was a negotiator, I was in my forties and it was like, you know, going out to the bar, yeah, it doesn't really do much for me right now. You know, I just want to go home and be with my family. Yeah, you got to uh, you got to have a level head on your shoulders for that type of job, in particular, for sure. Um, if you're going out and and getting lit, and you come into a, a situation the next day, you got a little hung hangover going on. Whoo, boy, yeah, I would be in the same position as you. I would just want to go home hang out with my family, kick off my shoes, watch a little TV and get full rest, get that seven, eight, nine hours of sleep, like hard REM sleep, undisrupted. I would need that. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and you don't get that. I, I mean, I worked almost my entire police career at night. Uh, you know, a lot of, <laughs> I would say the vast majority of SWAT call-ups occur at night. Yeah. You know, so you're, you know, you're, you go to bed at 10 o'clock and, you know, and again, this was a few years ago. We had we carried pagers, and the pager would go off. And, and my wife will tell you the story that every Sunday night, you know, she would cook this wonderful dinner, you know, roast or something like that. And we'd sit down to dinner, and bang, the pager would go off. Oh, geez. You know, and it'd be like, "Honey, I gotta go." You know, and yeah. I mean, she she tell you to this day. It's like every Sunday night that damn pager went off. <laughs> <laughs> it's like they knew. All right, yeah, he's about to exactly. eat. Let's get him out of the house. <laughs> Is that would that be the one of the hardest parts of that this job? 
would you say? Yeah, I, I, I mean, you know, law enforcement is a 24 hour a day thing, you know, and, yeah. and I liked working nights. I liked the hunt. You know, I, I liked the being able to do an investigation, you know, because usually after two o'clock in the morning when the bars closed, you know, I worked 11 at night till seven in the morning. So, you know, two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning. I mean, you've got four hours or so now that, okay, let's, let, let's go sit on this house and see what we can see. Cause we think it's a dope house or, you know, we, we know there's a bootleg cab stand here. Let's see what we can do with that. Let's I mean, so you can, you can sort of do your own investigations. Whereas on day shift, it's a lot, a lot more difficult. There's a lot more things going on, a lot more, you know, kind of nuisance runs and things like that. Or, you know, the captain wants to see you or this kind of thing. <laughs> night, you didn't, you didn't have that. You were kind of, you, you know, your own boss and you could do your own thing. And, and so, so I loved it. I, I mean, I, I enjoyed the investigative part of it as well. And I, I also spent three and a half years as an undercover narcotics investigator, which was, was also a lot of fun. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's got to be pretty intense. Um, I wonder as we we start to move toward like this digital world, if humans will still be needed for this this role. I, what do you think? Like, can they automate it? The uh, negotiations with a robot, but kind of like cover it up in a human voice? I don't think so. I, I, mean, I mean, you have to you have to adapt. You, you, you know, it, it's a, it's like, it's like a chess game. You know, I mean, this person said this, well, how am I going to respond? You know, Oh, I want to respond this way. Oh, wait a minute. I just got a note from my secondary. Oh, no, don't do that. Don't say that. So there there's, there's, I think there's too many moving parts. Yes. You know, there's too much. Uh, well, let's think about this. What, what do you want to say? You got to be careful what you say and you got to be careful how you say it. Uh, and, and, you know, again, with the understanding you're trying to build trust, you're trying to build a relationship with with somebody. And, you know, I, I, I'll tell you kind of a, a quick story. So we were th- this individual wanted to commit suicide and, and this started probably about eight o'clock at night and he slid his wrists and that didn't work. And for some reason, he thought it was a good idea to turn the gas on in his oven and stick his head in the oven like that was going to do something. Well, I, I, that didn't work either. Yeah. And then he called one of his family members and he, you know, was talking to them and they were smart enough to call the police. And so I'm on the phone talking to him. He's got a gun now. Oh, and now it's probably three o'clock in the morning and we're talking and, and he's, he's like, I'm really tired. And, and I thought it was kind of to the point where maybe I could start talking to him about coming out. I'm like, well, why don't you, why don't you just put the gun down and come out? I said, and I'll come down to the scene, you know, to your house. We were, we were several blocks away talking on the phone. And I, I said, I'll talk to you. We'll talk face to face. And it's like, I'd really like that. And I'm like, okay. I said, put the gun down, but take the phone with you. Don't hang up. Well, he hung up the phone, which is not a big deal because we're conditioned when a call is over to, to hang up the phone. So that wasn't something that was out of the ordinary. And about 20 seconds later, one of the tactical officers comes on the radio and says, we heard a gunshot. Oh, shit. And I thought, you got to be kidding. We did all this work and this guy shot him. He did. Shot himself in the head. But he shot himself at such an angle where the bullet went in his temple, went around underneath his skin, but not into his scalp, went around his scalp, his what? skull, and came out the other side. Never, never went through his skull, never got to his brain. So three times this guy tried to kill himself, and three times God said, nope, I don't think we want you up here today. What? So, you know, what so that's, of- that's not going to happen. And, and, you know, and you have things like that. I mean, and another guy... I got to the scene and, you know, I'm asking the officers, what's the deal? It's like, he's drunk. 
he's barricaded himself in his house with a gun and his wife. I'm like, okay, do you have him on the phone? Yeah. So I was talking to him. And as I told you, I said, a lot of times, two, three hours go by before we even start to talk about a resolution, how you know the person could come out. But I just had a feeling about this guy. And I talked to him for about 15 minutes. And I said to him, what would it take for you to come out? And there was this long pause. And he said, give me a beer. No way. (laughs) Honestly. And I I said, if I gave you a beer, do I have your word that you would come out and let your wife go? He said, do I have your word that I could drink it? I said, you have my word. So I gave $5 to one of the officers. I said, get out of the store, buy a beer. The tactical team put it on the front porch and I called them back. And I said, your beer's on the front porch, but you don't get it until your wife comes out. You put the gun down and you come out with your hands up. All of a sudden, the front door flies open. Here comes his wife. Here he comes with his hands up. We handcuff him, let him drink the beer, and off to jail he goes. Small victories. It's the little Absolutely. things in life. <laughs> Could be that simple, huh? Just a yeah, beer. I wish they were all that simple, right? Yeah, if they were all that simple. <laughs> Do you have like uh, codes within this industry? For example, like if he doesn't have a gun, it's like a a code green, or if he has a gun, it's a little bit more heightened. So it's a a red code before you get to these things, or are they all under the same umbrella? They're pretty much under the same umbrella. I mean, we we rely on on the, the beat officers, the officers in the district to get as much intelligence, to get as much information, you know, as we, as we possibly can glean from them. And then again, you know, we'll, we'll have, you know, and, and it just depends on how you get assigned, you know, you're working the crowd, you know, find out what you, what you can, you know, where's his mother, get his mother on the phone, get his wife on the phone, get, and, and you just try to start gathering information. And, you know, the, the tactical guys have all the tools, you know, they can, they can pull the armored car right up, you know, literally into your bedroom, practically, you know, right, right. And, and, and you can negotiate with me and people would shoot at it. And it's like, it's not, you're, you're not going to hurt us, you know, I mean, and stuff like that. So, but it would, it was intimidating. And so you can use that intimidate, you know, I don't like that gun. Well then, Hey, put the gun down and come on out. And yeah. Work. Yeah. You can use it to your advantage and stuff like that. It, it, that's what I say. I don't think it could ever be automated because you really had to kind of understand the situation and then go with what the, the facts were, go with what was presented to you and see how you could work that to your advantage. Yeah, there's definitely a human element you would need. And I agree with you there. Um, thinking about like a robot doing it, it would just be so data driven. Like if they say this, then we have an answer for that, like an like an automated answer for that. But yeah, I, and I there's think- no trust. I mean, the, you know, the guy, it's a robot. I mean, I don't trust you. You don't you don't you don't understand how I feel. And, and that's, you know, going back to what we were talking about before of attaching an emotion to what they were saying. Yeah. And, and, and again, you're, you're down in the weeds, you're down in the mud with them. And, and that's why it's exhausting and you need to be there. That's where you need to be. You can't be like, mm-hmm. well, I'm just up here and, and you know, you're screwed. Sorry. No, I mean, you really, you kind of need to connect with these people. Does the tone of your voice uh, play a big piece in yes. these negotiations? Yes. Yes, you yeah, can use your your you know late night DJ voice, uh, kind of you know to to sort of help you. You can you know you can use a you know a very stern parental kind of voice. You can use a more empathetic voice. You you know you can raise at the end of the sentence. You can raise your voice. You can lower your voice. All those kind of things yeah. play into w- what message you're trying to send to the. It's individual. so complex. It's so I love it. It's so complex. The 
psychology pieces i'm always fascinated by stuff like that it's so interesting to me do you ever use uh negotiation tactics on your family like if your daughter wants to go out and you kind of <laughs> negotiation with her um uh, maybe <laughs> <laughs> i love it <laughs> i mean she's an adult now and she's married yeah. So I, I, yeah yes i mean you you find ways to use these you know, in, in anything. I, I mean, even if you're negotiating for a job, you know, and, and you want to get a certain salary, you know, people will go in. First of all, you don't you don't ever want to be the first person to to name a salary. Here's how much money I want. You want to get the, the employer to say that to you. But when you go back or when you counter, yeah. you don't want to say, you know, I want fifty thousand dollars. You want to say some ridiculous off number like um, I need uh, $50,712.25. And, and, and you're thinking, well, well, why? Because what that does is it puts in the mind of, of the person, you know, whether it's the HR person or the, or the, you know, the manager of the department you're working with, that you've thought this through because that number is so weird that you've sort of itemized, okay, I need this, I need this, I need this, I need, and that comes out to, you know, $50,712.25. Oh, okay, so he or she has thought that through. That makes sense. Maybe I can give that to them then. Yeah, that's actually brilliant. We should uh, send out invoices to all the listeners because that's kind of a, a nice <laughs> Easter egg there. There you go. <laughs> you have cheat codes for life, sir. <laughs> I try. <laughs> So I, so I can tell from talking to you that you have a very strong mind. You have a very balanced head on your shoulders. I understand in 2012, you were diagnosed with cancer. I was. Yeah. Can we uh, get into this topic a little bit? Sure. Uh, yeah. So yeah. 2012, I was a, I had my own school security consulting business on the side and I was a girls high school basketball coach. Mm -hmm. uh, in Texas. And I had a callus break open on the bottom of my foot right below my third toe. And initially, I didn't think much of it because as a coach, you're on your feet a lot. Uh, but after a few weeks of it not healing, I made an appointment and went to see a podiatrist, a foot doctor friend of mine. And he took an x-ray and he said, Terry, I think you have a little cyst in there and I can cut it out. And he did. And he showed it to him. It was just a little gelatin sack with some white fat in it, no dark spots, no blood, nothing that gave either one of us concern but he sent it off to have it looked at uh, from pathology. Yeah. And then two weeks later, I received a call from him. And as I mentioned, he was a friend of mine. And the more difficulty he was having explaining to me what was going on, the more frightened I was becoming. And so finally, he just laid it out for me. He said, Terry, I've been a doctor for 25 years. Yeah. I have never seen the form of cancer that you have. You oh, have Jesus. Yeah. You have a rare form of melanoma. Most people think of melanoma as a, a cancer that is too much exposure to the sun. It affects the melon or the pigment in our skin. Uh, but there is a rare form of melanoma that appears on the bottom of the feet or the palms of the hands. And because my cancer was so rare, he recommended that I go to MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston to be treated. And so I did. I had the the bottom of my foot excised, uh, cut out where the tumor was, and I had all the lymph nodes in my left groin removed as well. And oh then when I healed, God. my doctor put me on a weekly injection of a drug called interferon to help keep the disease from coming back. The side effects of the interferon were that it gave me 
severe flu-like symptoms for two to three days every week after each injection. And I took those weekly injections for almost five years. So imagine having the flu every week for five years. What keeps you going? Like if you have the flu every week, essentially, where do you, where do you find the strength to keep going? Well, I, I mean, my faith is very strong. Certainly my family, we've talked about that a little bit, but, but yeah. I'll be honest with you that there were days yeah. that I prayed to die. I was so sick of oh. being sick all the time that yeah. I was just like, come on, God, I, I, this is ridiculous. I, you yeah. know, I'm, I'm done with this. And it, obviously I didn't die. I, you know, I mean, but I do believe that I was given the strength to, to just, and, and it, it got to a point where, you know, a lot of, you probably heard the saying, win the day. Yes. And, and for me, winning the day sometimes was, I've just got to win this five minutes. I've just got to get out of bed and I've got to make it to the couch where I will sit on my butt for the rest of the day because, you know, I'm throwing up, I ache, I have a headache, I have a fever. I mean, all the things, we've all had the flu. Exactly, I mean, yes. And, and you're, I would take my injections on Saturday night. So Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday were my really bad days. My body would start to recover Wednesday and Thursday. You would think that my best day would be Friday. But as it went on, my body I think my body knew it was coming. So Friday, it would be like, okay, we're starting to, I'd start to feel bad because it was almost like your body was like, okay, I know this is coming tomorrow. So we're getting ready. Yes. It, it was so weird. Uh, and then Saturday, I'd take it again. And, and that was just the cycle, you know, and, and every couple of weeks I'd see my oncologist, but I would, I would do that on Wednesday or Thursday because that's, those were the days that I felt the best and stuff. Um, so I did that for five years. And, five years. Yeah. 2017, I had to stop the interferon because it became so toxic to my body that I ended up in the intensive care unit with a body temperature of 108 degrees, which usually is not compatible with being alive. I was literally packed in ice while they gave me medicine to try to reduce my, my body temperature. Oh my so, I, so I had to stop it. And almost immediately, the cancer came back in the exact same spot on my foot where it had presented five years earlier. That necessitated in 2018, the amputation of my left foot. Uh, 2019, the melanoma worked its way up my leg into my shin, requiring two more surgeries. And then what finally- What the hell? Yeah, well, it gets worse. 2020, I had an undiagnosed tumor uh, kind of at the end of my leg, sort of in my ankle area that grew large enough that it fractured my tibia, my shin bone. And my only recourse right in the middle of the COVID pandemic was to have my left leg amputated above the knee. And I found out I had tumors in my lungs and I'm still being treated for those tumors. And Jay, I know this sounds like a very ugly and dark time, and it certainly has been, but I'll, I'll tell you two things. Number one, I don't really think you know yourself until you've been tested by some form of adversity. Yeah. And number two, I really believe that cancer has made me a better human being. Yeah, that is so much to take in. So you're you're going through it right now as we speak. Correct. As a matter of fact, Monday I'll start back for another week long treatment. I, I am treated for a week. I get two weeks off, and then I'm treated for a week, and I get two weeks off. So, and I've been doing this for about two years. For about two years. How long have you been doing podcasts for? Uh, podcasts are kind of my saving grace. They're kind of my purpose. Uh, 
probably for about two years I've been doing podcasts. Well, I, I remember when I, I started a motivational speaking business and then COVID hit. And I was like, well, how do I change this? How do I, you know, how do I still be able to do this? And somebody reached out to me and said, would you be a guest on my podcast? And honest, Jay, this is exactly what I said to him. I'm like, what's a podcast? I had, I had no idea what a podcast was. And, and when I first started, I had notes, you know, like taped all of my computer, all around <laughs> my camera. Yep, yep. I, I had no idea what I was doing, no idea what I was talking about. And now today, I've probably been a guest on well over 500 podcasts all around the world. Yeah, you're very inspiring. Um, do you have your own podcast or are you just guest on people's shows? I don't have my own. I, it's, you know, I just didn't feel, you know, with my treatments continuing to go on and stuff like that, that I had the, the time and the ability. And if, if I couldn't do it and make it something, you know, really good and something exceptional, it's like, I'm, I'm not going to do it then. I understand. Yeah. And, and listen, everyone at home, I mean, if you're hearing Terry's story, everything that he's going through, he's able to, to clearly make a difference and get his ass off the couch and do something and be proactive I mean, people should have limited excuses to why they aren't doing anything or trying anything. I mean, for how many years, Terry, have you been going through, you know, this cancer and you're able to, to, to get off and make a difference, man. It's, it's super inspiring. And at the beginning of the podcast, you wanted to make people have uncommon life, right? Like do something. I think this podcast is going to do that for sure. Just hearing your stories and your outcomes and, and what you're going through and how you have such a nice family to, to watch your back and that you're on various podcasts over 500. You said you've, you've lived, I want to say multiple lives in comparison to other people. And you're the hand you were dealt was, was shitty in a sense, but you're making completely the most out of it. Right. I'm trying. I, you know, I, I mean, I think we all, you know, I, I mentioned my father when he, uh, when I graduated from college, he was dying of cancer. And, and I remember at the time, this was in the 1980s, he had end stage breast cancer, which in a man was incredibly rare at the yeah. time. And doctors didn't really know what to do. And like I said, it was end stage, it was stage four and they pretty much sent him home to die. And he lived another three and a half years. And I believe he did because he had a purpose. He, he was in real estate and he loved real estate. And he, he actually worked up to two weeks before he died. And I kind of tucked that in the back of my mind. Like, you know, someday I'm going to be in this situation. I mean, we're all going to, you know, come to the end of our lives. And it was like, I need a purpose. I can't just lay in bed and say, you know, oh, woe is me. This is terrible. No, I've got to have something to do. I've got to be trying you know, to make a positive influence on other people with my story. And, and Jay, I don't have all the answers. You know, I, I mean, I don't want to sit here and say that, you know, hey, I've got it all figured out. I, I don't. I mean, I have bad days. There are days that I cry. There are days I get down. There are days I feel sorry for myself, but I just don't let myself stay in that state for very long. Purpose is huge. Purpose is so big. Um, so people typically that retire, after working, let's say, 40 years, and this, this seems like a, a common theme. I've heard too many stories like this. So once they retire, if this person does not have anything to do after that, 
and they just mosey around at home, chances are a year later, you'll you'll get a note, you'll get a, a phone call saying that this person died because they don't have a purpose. It's such a big portion of our lives. We have to have a purpose. We have to. We do. And 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 the other thing to remember about that is that over your life, your purpose is going to change. You know, when when I when I was younger, you know, I basketball was my purpose. I, I went to college. I played Division One college basketball. Uh, you know, and I really felt that was my purpose. I ate, drank, slept basketball. Yes. And then after college, I felt my purpose was to get into law enforcement. Now it took me some time to do that, but eventually I did. And now as I'm more than likely coming to the end of my life, my purpose is to put as much as much goodness, as much positivity, as much motivation, as much love back into the world as I possibly can with whatever time I, I have left. And, and a lot of times, you know, we all talk about our, our purpose or our why. It's gotta be, it's gotta be our job or our profession or our career. It yeah. doesn't. I mean, Not your job sure. could be over here and that's what you do to pay the bills, but your purpose is to be a podcast host or to write or to volunteer or to be an activist or whatever it is. And I always say this, especially to young people, if there's something in your heart, something in your soul that you believe you're supposed to do, but it scares you, yes, go ahead and do it. Because at the end of your life, the things you're going to regret are not going to be the things you did. They're going to be the things you didn't do. And by then it's going to be too late to go back and do them. Yes. Yes. Very wise. It's so true. Um, if you don't go out and basically what I've done is start becoming a, a yes, a yes person saying yes to all these opportunities. It gives you life experience and now you can tell your story to other people. And that's so valuable to me. Oh, man, isn't it funny how throughout life, the journey does change for sure. Cause I was the same way. Um, I played hockey and baseball and I wanted nothing more. All I ate slept and dreamed about was playing baseball at such a high level, probably until I was maybe like 27, I was holding on so long and then something clicked. I don't know what it was. Something clicked and this realization happened. I'm like, I just want to get people's stories and, and live vicariously through people and hear what they have to say and get a different perspective on life. Cause all I know is my life. That's it. I just know my shoes and in the grand scheme of things, that ain't shit. That's nothing. So many people have, have lived so, so much more than I could ever imagine. So I like to try and tap into their minds and get a little piece of the pie, if you will, from them. And I, I feel like that helps me grow substantially as an individual, it's especially your story, Terry. I mean, whew. You've been, you, like I said before, man, it seems like you've lived multiple lives during one life. So hats off to you. You're, you're kicking it. Very inspiring. I'm, I'm glad you came on to the show. Um, we're going to wrap it up here, but if, if there's anything you want to say to the listeners, one last thing before we get off, please be my guest. Let, let me tell you uh, one more story. If I <laughs> please, may, please, um, I've always been a big fan of Westerns growing up. You know, when I was, Young, my mom and dad used to let me stay up late and watch, you know, Bonanza and Gunsmoke. And my favorite was Wild Wild West. <laughs> Lucky you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 1993, the movie Tombstone came out. You yeah. very well may have seen it. It starred Val Kilmer as a man by the name of John Doc Holliday. 
and Kurt Russell as a man by the name of Wyatt Earp. Now, yeah. Doc Holliday and Wyatt Earp were two living, breathing human beings who walked on the face of the earth. They're not just made up characters for the movie. And Doc was called Doc because he was a dentist by trade, but pretty much Doc Holliday was a gunslinger and a card shark. And Wyatt Earp had been a lawman most of his adult life. And somehow these two men from entirely opposite backgrounds come together and form this very close friendship. And at the end of the movie, Doc Holliday is dying of tuberculosis at a sanitarium in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, which is about three hours from where I live. The real Doc Holliday died in that sanitarium and he's buried in the Glenwood Springs Cemetery. And Wyatt at this point in his life is destitute. He has no money, he has no job, he has no prospects for a job. So every day he comes to play cards with Doc and the two men pass the time that way. And then this almost last scene in the movie, the two men are talking about what they want out of life. And Doc says, you know, I was in love with my cousin when I was younger, but she joined a convent over the affair, but she's all that I ever wanted. And then he looks at Wyatt and he says, what about you, Wyatt? What do you want? And Wyatt kind of nonchalantly says, I just want to lead a normal life. And Doc looks at him and says, there's no normal, there's just life and get on with living yours. Jay, you and I probably know people that there's probably people listening to us that are just sort of sitting back and saying, well, when this happens, I'll have a normal life. Or when this occurs, I'll have a successful life. Or when that arises, I'll have a significant life. What I'd like to leave your audience with is this. Don't wait. Don't wait for life to come to you. Get out there. Find the reason you were put on the face of this earth. Use your unique gifts and talents and live that reason. Because if you do, at the end of your life, I'm going to promise you two things. Number one, you're going to be a whole lot happier. And number two, you're going to have a whole lot more peace in your heart. Beautiful. Terry, thank you so much for coming here. There was a lot there. You blessed us. Listeners at home, get out there and do something, please. Well, thanks for having me on, Jay. I really appreciate it.